Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We're continuing on in our study of Luke. It's another good passage for us uh, to meditate on today. Luke 14, 1 through 14. So one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but this good word endures forever, even to today. And so I love the book by London pastor Tim Chester. It's called A Meal with Jesus. And he asked this question, he says this in his book, uh, opening up, asked the question, how would you complete this sentence? So how would you complete this sentence? The son of man came. How would you complete that? What would you say? So Chester finds in the New Testament Uh, three instances of that phrase, the Son of Man came. And the three instances are first in Mark 10, 45. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know that verse. And the second instance is Luke 19, 10, when it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Another famous verse. But one not quite as famous as Luke 7.34 that says, The Son of Man has come 
eating and drinking. And so one of these three obviously didn't like the other one. And Chester makes the wonderful observation, the first two are statements of purpose. They're statements of why did Jesus come? Jesus came to serve, to give his life as a ransom to seek and save the lost. The third statement is a statement of method. It's how did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. So Luke, in particular, in his gospel and in Acts, makes a big deal about this. It's real important to him. One scholar claims, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Like, eating and drinking is important for Luke. They, they figure very prominently in his gospel, so he asks, why is that? And so Chester says, for Luke, eating... Having meals was a crucial way in which Jesus showed God's lavish grace to people, his, God's welcome, his acceptance of people, the extension of his grace, his community and his friendship with people. It wasn't just a metaphor, it was an inaction of God's welcome to people. And so in our passage today, Jesus accepts See, he doesn't just extend invitations, he accepts invitations all throughout the gospel. So he accepts an invitation to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And, you know, there's no record that Jesus ever refused an invitation. You know, that's a really nice detail in the gospels. He never says, no, I'm not going to eat with you. Never says that. Doesn't matter who it is. Somebody asks him over to his house, he goes. And he goes because he's going to show up and share his life with them in order to challenge them to come to him, to call them to receive his grace. I mean, just think of Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, any man, any woman, open the door, I will come in, sup with him and he with me. Anyone, an enemy, anyone. Well, one of the best things we can do for the kingdom is share meals. Uh, whether it's in our homes, whether it's out somewhere else, relationships deepen, conversations happen where the hope that is in you can be discussed. Luke wants us to know that. So we pray on the way to a gathering as we get ready to go, as we prepare food. We also prepare spiritually for the opportunity around the table to speak of the hope that's within us. It's the method Jesus used. Well, London Pastor Rico Tice uh, says the only problem with this is that Jesus is a very uncomfortable person to take with you to a dinner party. <laughs> and he can be. People are interested in Jesus, but people also have sharp attitudes towards Jesus. Jesus says things that make people uncomfortable. He makes us uncomfortable. Today's passage makes us uncomfortable. Ty says his words can have a sting to them. It gets our backs up. It collides with fallen man's way of thinking and doing things. It's something about chapter 13, that narrow door. There's a narrow door. We don't like that. And just look at this meal. It's a perfect illustration of that. I mean, have you ever been to a meal that just didn't go well? You may have had high hopes for it. Somebody said something, somebody did something, and it just got tense and awkward. 
Well, this, this is case in point here, and for the right reasons. Imagine what the host felt like at his dinner party. However, what Jesus does and says here within the context of this meal is a, is a gracious confrontation for the eternal good of all those present. And he chooses a meal to do that, to, to be sharing his life with those who invited him. So three points, Jesus enacts a healing, Jesus exhorts to humility, and Jesus expands our view of hospitality. So first, Jesus enacts a healing at a meal. Chester says there's a dark side to hospitality sometimes. We see that there, it's a Sabbath day. Jesus has just worshiped in the synagogue, that was his custom. And afterward, a ruler of the Pharisees invites Jesus to lunch at his house. And uh, Sabbath day lunches were a big deal. It's like our Sunday lunches. They're just kind of a big deal. It's a special meal, a festive gathering. And so in addition to Jesus, the rulers invited his lawyer and Pharisee friends. It's an esteemed invitation. The ruler invited you over. You wanted to be there. And so we're kind of surprised when we see this. Um, Initially, we wonder, well, maybe, you know, he's had other confrontations with them. Maybe their attitude toward him has changed. Maybe they're learning. Maybe they want to know him, attend to him. Um, but lamentably, we see the dark side of, human, of hospitality. Because they invite him over in order that they might watch him carefully. And one commentator says they might watch him lurkingly. Kind of an unnerving way to speak. They're looking for someone, something to charge him with. They, they, want to, they want to gather information on Jesus. And there's a guy with dropsy there. And it looks like really when you look at the whole gospel, it looks like they probably planted this guy with dropsy there. They've set a trap for Jesus. I mean, even in Luke 11:54, it says they, they lie in wait for him, trying to catch him in something he might do and say. It looks like they're just, they're setting a trap for Jesus at a Sabbath meal. Such is the heart of man. So dropsy is what we call today edema. It's this swelling, usually in the feet or the ankles or legs, and it's caused by this massive retention of fluids in the body. However, you know, I just looked this up on the internet. I'm, I'm you know, uh, it, medical people. So it, it's, it's, it's not a disease, but rather it's a symptom. It's a symptom of, of oftentimes worse medical problems, kidney disease or heart failure. And so it could signal something very serious in this man but compounding this is an emotional, social, spiritual element too. It's that the rabbis sometimes argued that it was a result of moral failure and therefore it could be God's judgment. They added that on to it. And so they've planted this man to see what Jesus will do to this guy that's got a medical condition on the Sabbath and maybe it's caused by God's judgment on him, according to them. But you got to love Jesus here. He doesn't, he doesn't sidestep the trap. He walks right into the Pharisees' trap. He says he responds to them, but there's no record of them saying anything. He's responded to their unspoken challenge. Like he's taking them on. 
And he, he goes and, and makes it overt. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And of course, their posture, as we've learned in chapter 13, is that you couldn't heal someone on the Sabbath unless it was life-threatening. Otherwise, you need to just wait till the day after the Sabbath. So the account of the woman with the disabling spirit in chapter 13, they expressly state that. Wait, don't do it on the Sabbath. And so in the face of Jesus' question, it's interesting, none of them say anything. Like they don't even give their reasoning. And really, what could they say once you make that clear to them? Really, you're gonna say you can't heal this guy on the Sabbath? Did you plant the guy and now you can't get him healed? And so I just love Dr. Luke. Remember, Dr. Luke, he's a medical doctor. He has a sensitive, compassionate heart like our medical doctors have. And he is the one who puts three instances like that in his gospel. The other gospels only have one. He gives us three. Because a big deal to him to set the record straight on how God relates to suffering people on the Sabbath day. He's confronting a mindset with the compassion of God. So Jesus takes this man in the face of their silence and the word is a strong word. He may have embraced him before them. Give him the hug. And then he heals him and sends him away. And then he says to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Really, would you wait? In itself evident, you, you see your son, you see, or you see your ox even, and they're in a dangerous place, about to drown, are you just gonna leave them there? There's no way you would do that, and yet, really? You're gonna argue that, that I shouldn't rescue a man who's literally drowning in his own fluid? That probably means he's very, very sick? You're going to say, I shouldn't bring rest to a sick and struggling man on the very day of rest that God established to release us from our struggling? It's not just permissible, it's entirely consistent with the spirit of the day. God established the day for your good to show you mercy. It's more than appropriate, more than appropriate. That's the heart of God with the Sabbath day. It's the heart of God for the Lord's day. And again, what can they say before this? The Pharisees and the lawyers stand rebuked before God's grace. And we see that Jesus can be a very uncomfortable person to take with us to dinner. But it's for their spiritual good. He's correcting a wrong-headed view of God. So just observe, Jesus is heal, enacting a healing during a meal. Meals are a way of expressing God's grace. And so meals can be great opportunities for deep healing. I read an account by Jim Peterson, he writes a book on lifestyle evangelism. And he tells this friend, he tells the story of a Brazilian friend named Mario. And Mario is well read in all Western philosophy from Rousseau to Kafka. His 
most admired philosopher was Bertrand Russell. You remember Bertrand Russell in writing that book, Why I'm Not a Christian, the scathing treatment. He was also a Marxist and very active. So Mario and Peterson become friends and they meet over a span of about four years studying the Bible together. And finally, and by God's grace, Mario accepts Christ, becomes a believer. And so Peterson, it just awakens in him to ask, at what point, Mario, did you become a believer? Thinking, which study was it that I did with you? What did I say that day? And uh, Mario shocked him. For Mario responded this way, he goes, well, remember that first time I stopped by your house? And we were on our, play, uh, our way somewhere together and, and I had a bowl of soup at your house with you and your family. I sat there observing you and your, and your wife and your children and how you related to each other and I asked myself, when, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiance? And when I realized the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. And so Peterson reflects on that night and he goes, you know, that night my children just did not behave well. And I was so frustrated that I had to discipline one of my children in front of Mario. And his reflection on himself was, what the healing power of a meal and the healing power of a redeemed person who's just trying to follow Christ in the midst of his flaws, all his flaws, God doing great things. The healing power. Well, the second is Jesus exhorts us to humility, verse seven through 11. And so, so somehow they all make it through that first tense moment at the start when they enter the house and now they're about to start the meal. We're progressing through this dinner. And Jesus observes that when the time comes for the guests to recline at table, they all kind of jostle with each other, scrambling, as one commentator says, engaging in this unseemly scramble for places of honor. They're trying to get the best seats, the honorable places. And so the custom of these sorts of meals was to have assigned seats for people. It's kind of like our, our rehearsal dinners that have those, those placeholders at the table, and you're not supposed to like move those around, you sit in that seat, that's your seat. And you know, the family's gonna sit up front, it'd be real awkward for you to go and remove that placeholder and you take the table in front. You just wouldn't do that. Well, here they don't use actual placeholders, but the host or the owner, he really knew where he wanted you to sit. And it was based on your rank or your preeminence. And this is inviting his colleagues, you know, his lawyer, Pharisee friends. They all kind of know their, their order and where they ought to sit. It was very regimented. You, you knew where you should sit in this arrangement. So he'd place you in positions of more or less honor in relation to himself. However, the guests, instead of waiting for the owner to make that clear to them, they, they scramble for these higher seats these higher ranked seats of honor. So Jesus just sitting back observing it. And so he looks at them all, all these guests, and he tells them a parable. So he, once again, he's just an uncomfortable person to take to a dinner party. He sits back and he describes a wedding party. First, he tells them what they shouldn't do at a wedding party. 
You don't rush in to a wedding party, take the places of honor, because then someone more distinguished than you may arrive, and the owner's gonna have to come up to you and say, you know, this seat was designated for that other person. You're gonna have to go down to the lowest place, and you kind of lose face in front of everyone. It's gonna be embarrassing. Well, then he says what you should do. Instead, when you arrive, sit at the lowest place, so that the host so desires, he may then say to you, friend, move up higher to a higher ranked seat. You'll be honored by, by everyone. Now, some have looked at this and says, Jesus is just giving a wisdom teaching on social etiquette. Like, don't commit a party foul. Don't, don't you know, understand how to relate in public. But this is far more important than just that. Jesus summarizes it by saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. A fundamental principle of scripture, because parties reflect God's grace. Parties are to be, albeit imperfect, parties are to be a reflection of the great banquet. And that's gonna be the whole point of next week's lesson. That's where we move in this whole passage, the banquet continues. You see, the gospel is that Jesus gave up his rank. He had the preeminent rank. There wasn't a rank higher than his. He didn't have to scramble or jostle for that place. He had it. He owned it. It was his. And he gave up that highest place to go down, not just to a lower place, but to the lowest place, to a a place we would never want, imagine going. You and I don't relate to God by climbing a pecking order. That's not how we relate to God. We don't have to outshine someone to get to God. We relate to God by receiving the gift of such a God who goes down to the lowest point for us. And so God goes after the humble. He goes after those who know their need, know they're empty. God set the scene for this at the beginning with Mary's song. She praises God when he selected her of all people to bear Messiah. She sings in this grateful, astonished praise. He has brought down the mighty from their, home, from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's what God does. That's the nature of God himself. That's the gospel itself. It means in all our relating with others, we're not to be scrambling to be first, to be competing with others. We're those who go and lift others up. And Jesus is saying, thankfully, this mentality reflects the gospel itself. It reflects what God's great banquet looks like. God finds us in the lowest spot and lifts us to the highest spot. And so Jesus is uncomfortable because he rattles what's so endemic to human nature. Fallen man is just number one. He's first. He's autonomous. We find that in our our hearts. It's the great sin of pride, as C.S. Lewis speaks about. It's that deep pleasure we have that we don't want to admit to to be better than the rest. It's what makes the devil the devil. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is always looking down on others, and if you're looking down, you can't see who's above you, which is God himself. It crushes our pride, but in the most healing, renewing way. God humbles us before him. He shows us how small and needy we are. And the amazing thing, instead of shaming us, pushing us lower, he exalts us. He exalts us. So so Jesus in this uncomfortable dinner party, he's 
turning our fundamental bent attitude on its head and saying we don't run by pride, we, we are driven by humility, the nature of God himself. So we look at ourselves, am I, am I motivated by humility in my relationships with others? Well, third, Jesus expands our view of hospitality. That's eight through 14. So we're continuing to move through this awkward dinner and now they've, they've seated and now Jesus directs himself to the host. I just gotta wonder what the mentality of the host was by this time in his dinner. So Jesus looks at the host and says, when you throw a party, don't just invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, people like you in this case, like you've already done today, your lawyer, your Pharisee colleagues. Don't just do that, it's fine that you do that. We're always going to do that, but don't just do that. And behind this is a real stratified, rigid cultural practice in, in the day, not just among the Jews, but in the Greco-Roman world as a whole, this social structure of reciprocity and gift obligation system. Chester explains that it was like the stability of the whole Roman Empire was based on this intricate overlapping web of relationships of give and take from the emperor all the way down to the most common child in the remotest province. You did for those in your circle and they did for you. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. The emperor gives gifts to his lesser rulers and that those lesser rulers then give them his lo their loyalty throughout the empire. What happened at the highest rank happened at the lowest rank. That's just how it worked. That's their social system. The lenses they viewed relationships by and Jesus is not content with that just as he did with their fundamental attitude, what drives them to act, he turns the whole system of relating to others on its head. And it's the same with us today. He said, instead of limiting your invitations to just people like you, those who can reciprocate, invite to your feasts, the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind. And when you do this, you will be blessed because God they can't repay you. Rather, you, should be, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. An amazing statement. The blessing at the resurrection of the just. So what Jesus does here is expand our concept of hospitality. He's pushing our limits for us. It's not to be limited to those like us, those who can reciprocate and return the favor, not just to insiders, but outsiders. It's to be an expression of lavish generosity. God is a generous God and really reflects God's great banquet. So Jesus' ethic here is nothing short of revolutionary. It's, it's not just to be generous with our things, but generous with our time and our relationships, which is actually more costly. If we just give our food to a needy person and don't give ourselves, we implicitly can communicate I've got it together and you don't got it together. I have what you need, but I, you don't have anything I need. If we sit together and eat and share as persons, we communicate, yeah, I'm a fellow needy person too. I need grace as much as you do. In the early 20th century, they called philanthropy without relationship, they called it stingy hospitality. We give ourselves. It's hard to do, our time is so limited but we always have to eat. 
So what if the church in our city or in our land, what if we stretched a little more in this way? What if I stretched a little more in this way, sharing meals together, speaking of how that reflects God's fellowship of us, and we're back to the whole idea of healing again. How does healing take place? Well, a story I love, it's not exactly a meal story, but I love the story. It's about John Perkins, one of our Mississippi heroes. Started Mendenhall Ministries, Voice of Calvary Ministries. He was raised as a sharecropper in the 30s. His brother was uh, like a war hero. He, He fought in World War II. He came home and got in a little dispute with a police officer, a white police officer in 1946, and he, he was shot. And the family sent John off to California to keep him out of trouble. They were scared for him, and, but while he's there, he becomes part of a multi-ethnic church, and he, and he becomes a believer, like he experienced God's love in Christ. And then to his surprise, he feels God calling him back to Mississippi. Like he never wanted to come back and he came back and he began organizing the blacks in his city of Mendenhall to help with their businesses. He begins preaching these revival services out in the country, gospel tent services and he ends up getting wrongfully detained by the white police and severely beaten and held in jail. But when he gets back, he goes right back at it and he's preaching God's amazing love in Christ, but he knows something deep inside him is wrong. He has this deep-seated malice and bitterness against white police officers. And so one day he's preaching out in the open air in a tent. And this white police officer, last name of King, shows up to one of his services and Perkins is there preaching, just feeling it welling up suspicion, resentment. But the police officer stays after his sermon. He walks up to him after the sermon. He speaks with him after the sermon, treats him like a man of dignity and knowledge, asks his opinion about the problems in the area, and he keeps coming back. Every time Perkins is preaching in that tent, King shows up and supports him in what he's trying to do. They develop a mutual respect. They share their lives together and become friends. And Perkins says, late in life, as he reflects back on that moment, he says, God finally broke me. And he started a healing process in me. And that's what makes the gospel unique. This officer's love for me in Christ helped me heal from sin of bitterness. And that power that Jesus is speaking of here that reflects nothing less than the gospel itself. And so we look at Jesus' teaching here, really it fills us with this stunning gratitude because spiritually speaking, you and me, we're all poor, crippled, lame, and blind. And we know it. We're, we're hamstrung in a host of different ways. We don't have anything to reciprocate. Like we can't pay him back. You don't have this fund that you can pay God back with. He's getting nothing from you. In fact, at the cross, he takes all of our spiritual poverty from us, all of our spiritual inability, all of our spiritual blindness. He takes it into himself. He owns it as his, takes it from us. 
He suffers and dies for all of our sins and he does that to give us something that would blow our minds to fully comprehend to invite us into a wedding banquet where there's a placeholder with our name on it and we have our seat. It's an unbridled welcome and enthusiasm and acceptance by the voice that really matters. And so when we feel how tough it is to open up our circle in love like this, imagine how much more difficult and costly it was for God to open up his circle and love us like this at the cross. And our only own feelings of struggle actually convert to make us more grateful and exalting of the God who loved us to this depth. And so Jesus is an uncomfortable dinner guest but he's uncomfortable to us in order to bring us true lasting comfort, a comfort like that, that we all long for. He invites us graciously in, he invites us to share also in his method of extending his generous hospitality to others. And so today, might you rejoice in a gospel like this, a savior like this, and bit by bit, may his way of doing things be our way of doing things. May God add his blessing to you, let's stand.